Welcome to the Gut Connection with Brian Jerby, MD, where we discuss the connection that gastrointestinal health has with all of health. We review the latest research and interview the greatest minds in this rapidly advancing field of gut health and integrative functional medicine. Please keep in mind that this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for care from a licensed medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that this does not constitute medical advice or other medical services. If you would like more information about Dr. Jerby and the type of medical care that he provides, please visit drjerby.com. That's D-R-J-E-R-B-Y.com. Now, let's get to this episode of The Gut Connection. All right, welcome to another episode of the Gut Connection podcast. And with me today is Dr. Mark Pimentel, who, if you read any of the SIBO or IBS literature, uh, he really needs no introduction. But uh, just to abbreviate things, he's much more than this, but he's definitely the executive director of the MASS program, which stands for Medically Associated Science and Technology, which is located at the Cedar sinai Medical Center in L.A., and he's professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine, also at Cedar Sinai. And a few of Dr. Pimentel's most significant accomplishments, at least what I think, um, he's got tons of them, but these are some of the um, most notable ones, include the discovery of rifaximin as a treatment for IBS. Um, he also developed um, the first blood test for uh, antibody testing um, for IBS based on IBS being derived from an acute gastroenteritis. And he described the association between IBS and bacterial overgrowth, which forms the basis of microbiome therapies in this condition, as well as uncovering the fact that methanogens or methane-producing organisms are causing uh, constipation in humans. And he and his group uh, recently developed a breath test for our mysterious hydrogen sulfide, and the, the test has been available now uh, for a little over a year. I've got many questions about hydrogen sulfide, and I'm glad he's working out many of these details. And so welcome, Dr. Pimentel. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Um, the, thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. Well, we've got a lot to talk about and a short time to do it in, so let's get right to it. Um, you've done so much IBS and SIBO research that we could uh, talk about, but we really want to focus today on hydrogen sulfide. And, uh, you, you know, you look in the literature and um, you see a lot about hydrogen sulfide. Could, could you give our listeners maybe a brief summary of why it's been necessary to devote so much time and so much effort uh, to research on hydrogen sulfide? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the gut fermentation, um, basically the bacteria produce all sorts of chemicals, but, but really produce four main gases. Uh, carbon dioxide, which is humans produce that so you can't use heart carbon dioxide to, to really say it's bacteria versus human but there are three gases that are predominantly bacteria uh in origin and that's hydrogen methane and hydrogen sulfide 
and I hearken back to when hydrogen first came out uh, as a breath test. And wow, were we ever naive just thinking that hydrogen's the only, you know hydrogen is the be all end all because it's basically the beginning, not the end. Uh, because as we'll get into, hydrogen is just a fuel for methane and hydrogen sulfide. But there was a lot of interest in hydrogen sulfide in the 1980s and 90s in stool, not in on the breath test. Uh, and there's a lot of relationships between hydrogen sulfide and diarrhea and hydrogen sulfide and inflammation that were established back then and then sort of fell away. Okay. Um, so you set out to measure it because previously we had to kind of guess uh, when we looked at a breath test, um, both pretty much flatlining of both uh, hydrogen and methane. And so we guessed, aha, this, uh, this could be hydrogen sulfide. And, um, and so, you know, what have you learned from developing the, the um, hydrogen sulfide breath test as far as how accurate were we uh, in our guessing with um, uh, the previous uh, limitations that we had? Well, I, I go back to the nineties a lot because when I, when I first started fellowship, you know, we were doing hydrogen and methane. So methane was added in the 90s. And I always questioned my mentor and questioned other people. I said, well, why are we doing methane? What does it mean? Um, and it wasn't until 10 years of methane on breath tests that we knew what it meant. I didn't want to do that with this. I mean, when you're going to add hydrogen sulfide. Let's try and figure out, add it in, but at the same time, try and figure out well, what does it mean? What is it doing? How is it? I don't want to wait 10 years and have a breath test that doesn't really, it isn't understandable like the, like with the methane. But um, but when we added hydrogen sulfide, there's a lot of nuts and bolts to that. You have to you have to be able to contain hydrogen sulfide. It's very reactive, uh, so you have to have the right kind of gas bag. Otherwise, <clears throat> it's not going to go. It's not going to travel well because uh, hydrogen sulfide sticks to things and 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 it's just a reactive gas. Then you have to have a new instrument that measures all three gases. And that's tricky because the old instruments can't do it. You can't just plug and play a sensor in there because of a lot of different factors. And the sensors have to be oriented in a particular way. We learned all of this over time. Uh, and then you, that that's irrelevant. You have to be able to say hydrogen sulfide means something and that it's meaningful to the patient. And that's really what we've been working on for the last couple of years and, and find that just on the surface, you know, I know you have a lot more questions, but that hydrogen sulfide is associated with diarrhea. Okay. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Is hydrogen sulfide always associated with diarrhea or elevated levels? Is yeah, that pretty so, much? Yeah. That, I mean, that's a, I get that question all the time. Uh, and, and Brian, please call me Mark. I appreciate it. Uh, the, the, Hydrogen sulfide is associated with, with diarrhea most of the time. But okay. as everything in medicine, there's always the outlier or the unusual case, uh, but, but really head and shoulders above constipation. So if you have hydrogen sulfide over five, almost nobody is constipated. If you have hydrogen sulfide over three, which is the new cutoff, almost everybody is diarrhea, IBS, or functional diarrhea. But the further down you go, the more overlap you get. But there's one thing we already know is we know methane causes constipation and we know hydrogen sulfide causes diarrhea and we know that they fight for hydrogen. So the two classes of organisms making methane and hydrogen sulfide, they're fighting. So they don't want 
the other one there. It's sort of like, you know, two two neighborhoods trying to fight for a particular food, and one has to win, you know, and 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 be the dominant. But there are occasions where a little bit of methane is there and hydrogen mm. sulfide is there. Methane always wins. Methane always dominates the phenotype. So even if you have a little bit of hydrogen sulfide, if methane's there, you're going to be constipated. So methane uh, dominates in terms of symptoms. Got it. Okay. So um, how about organisms that you've done a lot of work with the microbiome, especially in the, the small bowel um, what have you found about the organisms that seem to be the most um, predominant uh, hydrogen sulfide producers? Uh, the most predominant hydrogen sulfide producers. So, if you, I, I keep going to methane because methane is so much easier. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't easy to sort of figure it out, but now that we've figured it out, meth methanogens in the human uh, colon and intestine, we're talking about 90% of them are. M. smithii, Methanobrevibacter smithii. 10% of them are M. stadmanae, uh, um, stadmanae, sorry, blank for a I'm... second. But in terms of hydrogen sulfide production, there's a host of organisms that can do it. Okay. But there are sort of, uh, you know, uh, the royalty of hydrogen sulfide production. And so the royalty of hydrogen sulfide production are... Uh, the king is probably the sulpovibrio. The queen is probably the lophila, what's uh, worth the eye. And then there's fusobacterium, a variety of those that's probably the jack. So, um, you know, so we, we, we've got some organisms that are very, very prominently uh, focused on producing hydrogen sulfur. Right. So I do a lot of... Um both combined uh, breath and stool testing. And uh, one thing about P uh, PCR stool testing is that we can measure uh, desulfovibrio and um, we see that in the colon. Um, so, I mean, when it comes to hydrogen sulfide SIBO, if I can call it that, are the organisms in the small bowel the colon or both? So I'll be able to tell you that maybe next week. Well, I will. No, let me say it again. I will know that next week. I may not be able to tell you yet because we have to publish it. But uh, we are uh, doing sort of a pan gut panel uh, to see where are the methanogens. Are they in the mostly duodenum, jejunum, ileum, colon, uh, and where is the hydrogen sulfide production occurring most dominantly? Um, and and so I'll be able to get you that answer, but. But I think with methanogens, I think we're, we're, which is why we changed the name to intestinal methanogen overgrowth, we think a lot of it's happening in the colon because it's just, it's either there or not there. It, there's a static production of, of methane. Similar things are happening with hydrogen sulfide, so you might be right. Maybe it's mostly in the colon. Maybe it can be measured in stool uh, without, you know, just by measuring stool. Um, but, but, um, We'll find out. I'll let you know. Okay. Um, do you think that uh, any of the um, mechanisms for production of hydrogen sulfide are upregulated in certain conditions? Like the the in certain conditions, the the um, organisms involved upregulate their ability to um, produce hydrogen sulfide, or is that just that needs to be worked out yet? 
Yeah, so in terms of hydrogen sulfide, you need hydrogen. So the more hydrogen you produce, I think the more likely you are to be hydrogen sulfide uh, because you have to vent uh, the hydrogen. The hydrogen. So um, let me say it in a slightly different way. The hydrogen producers, which we now know on in SIBO, are E. coli and Klebsiella predominantly, maybe a little Aromonas. Those two or three organisms, if the hydrogen level in the environment goes too high, they can't they they start to turn off because it's almost like they're pickling themselves but they want a methanogen or a hydrogen sulfide producer to be nearby because then they use up the hydrogen and they're allowed to continue to just grow and enjoy and live life to its fullest <laughs> uh without all that hydrogen around so um it's almost beneficial for the organisms to have hydrogen sulfide production or methane production around um and it helps the, the others flourish. But why some people get this bloom of hydrogen sulfide or bloom of methanogens, it, it, it's a little more clear on the diarrhea side that SIBO occurs because of food poisoning. Uh, and so I think the hydrogen sulfide side is a little clearer uh, from, the, from recognizing that we think food poisoning triggers it. On the methanogen side, we think it's more environmental. We think your parents had methane, you acquired the methane, and as a result, you're more on the constipated side. Uh, at least that's what we're seeing uh, in our data now. Okay, great. I treat a lot of inflammatory bowel disease, and um, are are you foreseeing any utility for testing hydrogen sulfide production in the, the face of IBD? Uh, I think that's ripe for the picking um, because I would imagine, and, and I don't have data on it yet because we haven't gotten that far. We're still, you know, working. We worked out the functional diarrhea, then the diarrhea IBS. The next would be things like microscopic colitis, uh, things like ulcerative colitis, because in the 1990s there was some suggestion that ulcerative colitis had hydrogen sulfide or sulfate reducing bacteria being elevated in the colon. So those are the next sort of sequence of investigation, but I would not be surprised. But the question is, is it even much higher in that group than it is in, in uh, you know, in IBS or in functional diarrhea? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but it always puzzles me, uh, and probably you yourself as well, treating these patients, microscopic colitis. It's a weird one because <laughs> you can treat them for a month with budesonide or even Pepto-Bismol some people used. And boom, they're they're like normal for two years. So right. it doesn't behave like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease and really suggests a microorganism or something. Why would it just get so much better and stay better for such a long period of time? Um, so, yeah, need to look at it. Right, right. Okay. So uh, along that line of thinking, um, maybe you can't tell me what the research, what your research is showing yet, but clinically your experience in treatments that work for hydrogen sulfide SIBO. Do you have any? Well, I can tell you what we're doing and what we're hopefully doing. Uh, so what we're doing is we're giving rifaximin with bismuth, Pepto-Bismol. I sort of mentioned that just moments ago. Pepto-Bismol has been shown in the 90s to uh, reduce hydrogen sulfide production by sulfate-reducing bacteria hence weakening the organism because that's how they make energy. Um, and then we combine that with rifaximin, which we know 
tackles the hydrogen producers, which provides the fuel for the hydrogen sulfide. And we seem to get a good response with that. Um, now, we just finished a trial with a brand new thing, and it looks very promising for hydrogen sulfide. So I'll just say that as a teaser. But, but yeah, there's always we're always trying to come up with the next thing because it's important not to just know the gas. It's important to then say, okay, look, this is the double-blind study that says this is how you should do it. Treat it this way, and, and we're doing that all at the same time. Right, right. So along those same lines, um, you know, bismuth is also known to be uh, a disruptor of biofilms. Uh, do you, is there any thought about um, uh, hydrogen sulfide organisms typically being protected by biofilms? And maybe that's one of the ways that bismuth makes rifaximin more active. Uh, it could definitely be a way. Um, there's a paper that literally just came out in uh, – in gastroenterology on biofilms and uh, they felt that people who when they were able to clean the biofilms out now this is cleaning directly with colonoscopy <clears throat> that they got better in terms of their IBS like symptoms more so than patients where the biofilm was just sort of left behind but what they found in the biofilm that they sucked out or washed out was E. coli they didn't actually say that there was there was or was not a sulfate-reducing bacteria, but it wasn't one of the, the obvious organisms in the biofilm. So you, you, you are right in a way, but it may be the E. coli that's in the biofilm and maybe not the sulfate reducer. But regardless, the biofilm may need to be dealt with. You know? Right, right, okay. All right, um, does your uh, lab have any plans to maybe try to uh, correlate PCR stool testing with... Um, Hydrogen sulfide breath testing. We're we're doing that as we speak. I mean, oh, really fantastic! So, Great. Uh, that that data is uh, almost. I mean, it's it's part of a paper that we're publishing. So, cool. Uh, I'll be able to share that with you. But but the important thing is for that paper is to sort of characterize the classic. What what is the organism that's causing methane? Was the organism that's causing hydrogen sulfide, or who are the organisms? And we're putting that all into perspective in this one big trial that uh, that you'll that's done. I mean, the paper is ninety percent written, so you'll see that shortly. Hopefully. Great, great. What's that going to be published in? Uh, well, we haven't submitted to the journal yet, so okay. uh, we we're supposed to be submitting it within the next two weeks. Great. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for it. So I'll let you know. Well, listen, a lot of research is being done. You look in the literature and you see about, wow, hydrogen sulfide uh, has a lot of good effects um, in the human organism. Um, is there any thought about uh, hydrogen sulfide production as actually a form of an adaptive response in diarrhea with the objective of actually protecting the mucosa? And that's why it's... Uh, produced, but maybe some regulator has been uh, dysregulated? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I reflect on what mom used to say. Um, too much of a bad thing is a bad thing. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And, you know, <laughs> not having enough of a good thing or a bad thing is a bad thing. So it, everything is a balance. So one of the, the things that we characteristically saw with methane is that when your methane is super high, you're constipated. 
But what we saw in colitis, in, in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, is none of them have methane. Um, so what we don't want with methane is to make it zero, because maybe that's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the same thing is going to happen with hydrogen sulfide. Our goal is not to make it zero. Our goal is to get it to a place where it is eubiotic with the human. Uh, to a level where it's not causing toxicity, but yeah, because you're you're right, hydrogen sulfide has positive benefits. Uh, methanogens have positive and negative benefits. So if you don't have any methanogens, maybe you do have diarrhea. Uh, maybe that's part of the reason why you get Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is the absence of these organisms. Um, so all of that, you know, requires a lot more research because I I don't believe it's about just wiping everything out. Which is why, and and I know you're not going to get to this question, so I'll just say it, which is why I still don't know that phages, for example, are going to be ideal. Because phages will literally wipe out a population, and I don't want that. Uh, Antibiotics never wipe everything out. They kind of just reduce things. But even that may be a bit of a sledgehammer approach. I'd like to figure out a way to just sort of of retune it and not just, you know, sledgehammer or wipe things out, you know. But let's see. Right, right. Any work being done with in your lab with the um, rifamycin um, that is uh, coded to release only in the colon? I think the trade name is uh, Aim Colo. Right. No, we're not working with with that particular product. Um, I, I guess it goes back to my to our data where. You know, the hydrogen fuel, for sure, is coming from the small intestine. So releasing an antibiotic just in the colon may be terrific for, like, E. coli diarrhea from food poisoning. But whether it will work for IBS and SIBO is really questionable. Because uh, if it doesn't release in the small bowel, it's not going to make the bloating go away. It's not going to make those symptoms go away. And to be honest, even if it does reduce hydrogen sulfide organisms, if they happen to be in the colon, you've got still all this massive amount of hydrogen up up top that is just, hey, hydrogen sulfide producers, you've got all this food, grow back, you know, and recurrences might be sooner. So, I mean, that's conjecture, but uh, that's, you know, from experience, seeing these different things come out, you know. Right. All right. I've seen it before where you, you treat the um, methane and then you repeat the breath test and the hydrogen's out the roof. That's it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So we're kind of bringing it to a close here, but the last um, thing that I would like you to do for our audience is you just came back from the uh, American College of Gastroenterology Mm -hmm. meeting, which um, was the first in-person meeting for you and in two years and could you just give us the high points of the of the research that you um and your group presented there that may be uh interesting to our listeners sure uh in particular our our stuff but i'll let me start by saying that there was a very nice paper that came up by one of my colleagues of course who was there and that reminded me of it where he was, he published a paper in Gastro Clinics of North America, and the three bullet points at the end of the paper were: SIBO is associated with IBS. Number two, methane is associated with constipation. Number three, antibiotics, probiotics, and other things are useful in IBS because IBS is a microbiome condition. 
And these people who were who are the leaders of IBS world 10 years ago would never write such things. I mean, we've come a long way. And I think this meeting sort of exemplifies that we've, we, we've come a long way. But in particular, our research, we were presenting that methane is associated with a lower heart rate. So when you have a higher methane on your breath test, your heart rate is lower. When you get rid of the methane with, with an antibiotic, your heart rate goes up. I'm not talking about it's going up by 20 beats per minute. I'm talking about three or four beats per minute. But something about methane is working through the vagus nerve and affecting cardiac status. It's affecting possibly blood pressure in addition to the constipation and all the other things. So we have a lot more to learn about methane as well. We also yeah, that's presented, fascinating. We also presented a little bit more about our, that antibody, the antibinculin antibody, and we showed that we, we demonstrated that it's an IgG4 antibody, which is an autoimmune antibody, and so now we know which subtype of IgG it is. Um, and and uh, also a new app that's fantastic at looking at stool. We presented that as well because we think that looking at stool pictures, which might gross some people, but it's really good for clinical trials, and, and we need it for the clinical trials we're doing with methane and hydrogen sulfide because the patient's you know, they say that they have this, that, or the other thing, but it turned out they didn't. The, the pictures don't lie. Patients don't lie either. They just don't remember. You know? <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and that's our problem. Right. Well, that's fascinating stuff, and we're all kind of always continually sitting on edge uh, waiting for uh, your group's uh, next uh, um, research work and, and publication. So, we're very grateful for all that you do and uh, keep up the good work. And um, we're really excited about hydrogen sulfide and um, learning more about that. And I just hope that, uh, you know, if there's any way that we can help you out, please don't uh, hesitate to ask us. We've got plenty of data um, on the TRIA Smart breath test uh, uh, in our clinic. And um, trying to look at that, maybe correlating it with um, uh, PCR stool analysis as well. So um, kind of exciting stuff and always something new on the horizon. So thanks again for uh, joining us. I'll let you get back to work because I know you got a lot to do. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. And that ends this episode of The Gut Connection. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll look forward to having you back for our next episode, where we'll discuss more gut-related topics and interview leaders in this rapidly advancing field. If you'd like more information, please visit us at drjerby.com. That's D-R-J-E-R-B-Y dot com. Until next time, take care and may God bless you.